This program is made possible by the members and donors to the show. To support the work we do for as little as a buck a month, or to sign up as a member and get commercial-free versions of every episode, plus members-only bonus content, sign up at patreon.com slash bestoftheleft, or visit the Contribute tab at bestoftheleft.com. Now, welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall learn about some of the lesser-known sides of Martin Luther King Jr.'s life and legacy, not just about his radicalism and his focus on labor rights, but also some new takes, I think, on the long shadow of the patriarchal views that he held and reinforced. Our clips today come from Democracy Now!, Backstory, On the Media, The Dig, The Root, and Thinking Cap. And then stick around at the end for a continued conversation with our resident Trump supporter, Sam, and a breakdown of the old adage that the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing. of those who are not in professional jobs, of those who are not in the so-called big jobs. But let me say to you tonight that whenever you are engaged in work that serves humanity and is for the building of humanity, it has dignity and it has worth. You are reminding not only Memphis, but you are reminding the nation that it is a crime for people to live in this rich nation and receive starvation wages. It is a crime for people to live in this nation um, and receive starvation wages. I immediately think about what's happening right now in Kentucky and Oklahoma, well-known red states where the teachers have marched out in Oklahoma. In many places, there's only four days of school a week. Fifth day, the teachers go out and do their second and third jobs because they can't make enough money. Uh, What, 49 of 50 states and the amount of money that they are making. Um, why do you think, uh, Reverend James Lawson, that Dr. King is not remembered as much for his intense message about economic justice, his support of unions? Uh, do, do you want my frank opinion? <laughs> I do. Okay. I happen to think that because... Martin Luther King Jr. was a black man and saw racism and racial injustice and economic injustice as crimes against humanity. That it is the racist element in the United States that does not see that that message relates to the entirety of the land. 
and that what the CRM is called in the United States teaches too many people that that only amounts to issues for the Negro and not issues about tyranny and issues about our capacity to govern ourselves. I think it is the racist element in our society that does not accept King in Christianity, for an example, as perhaps the primary prophet, the primary preacher of the 20th century. And this applies to uh, those uh, unemployed steel workers in Pennsylvania and other places just as much yeah. as it applies to uh, unemployed people who used to work in the cotton economy in Mississippi. These are the left out people, uh, the throwaway people that, right. of, of plantation capitalism. And this is an uncomfortable conversation for uh, advertisers and people who like to sponsor the Martin Luther King Day events, politicians. People come together to celebrate, which they should. But bringing up these issues is about right now. It's about economic injustice right now. And it's very uncomfortable for some people to have that conversation. And it's not, it's not understood either with the many white workers who have been terminated in the steel industries and agriculture in all across the country and, and who are not able now to have the income that they had in 1960 or 1970 because of the economic circumstances. Workers everywhere should yeah. see King as their hero, exactly. as their hero, a, a labor a, absolutely. hero. Yes. Absolutely. Um, I wanted to ask you, um, Michael Honey, about the women of the movement, the women who were working not only with Dr. King, but Reverend Lawson, you were based in Memphis as well, the women icons of the civil rights movement. Well, I would point to the to the grassroots people. There are women who are well known, like uh, Rosa Parks, but there are uh, thousands and thousands of women who were in the movement who took people into their homes during Mississippi Freedom Summer mm. and uh, various ways of supporting the Memphis sanitation strike, particularly the economic boycott of the businesses downtown. And uh, people like Cornelia Crenshaw in Memphis, who uh, helped with uh, or raising funds for the strike. And was on the march with us many times, yeah. many meetings, yes. After, oh, Anel Ponder of Mississippi is another illustration. Mary Jo Robinson of the Montgomery Bus Boycott. Helen Taylor in the sit-in campaigns in, Memphis, in Nashville. Uh, it, yeah, the, the movement could not have happened without... Uh, the women who very often produced not only care, but were the people who also set the strategy. The Montgomery black women uh, raised the issue of the indignity and hostility they often face from white bus drivers. So you get their push uh, as early as 1952-53, and then you get sanitation workers in Memphis saying, I am a man. The, the issue of human dignity and appreciation of human life, that agenda was actually set by black women in Montgomery, Alabama, reaffirmed by black women in our Nashville campaigns. 
I mean, when you talk about so, Joanne Robinson uh, and Montgomery, for example, uh, Rosa Parks sits down on the bus December 1st, 1955. That day, um, you have Joanne Robinson, an educator in Montgomery. Exactly. Who, what, um, uh, what do you call it? Mineographs off all these exactly. flyers to begin That's the bus right. boycott. Spent, spent the, spent the entire night with a, a handful of people mimeographing 30,000 uh, little half-page notices of the boycott on Monday, passed them around on Saturday into barbershops, into pool halls, into churches, and whatnot and whatnot. Yes, absolutely. Another example yeah. during the Memphis sanitation strike <laughs> is that uh, AFSME, the union, had no strike fund for this yes. strike. It was a walkout yes. by the men. It was never... Anything that the union tried to bring about mm -hmm. and who carried out uh, that fundraising, a lot of it was women in the community and also the, the women of uh, members of the workforce, uh, the strikers. That's right. They were the ones that were holding the families together. And as many people I interviewed, uh, black workers in that strike said, we could never have done this without the full support of our families. Uh, I so wanted the I am a man slogan. Yeah. Go ahead. The I'm a man slogan really, really meant human dignity. Yeah. Everybody understood this. This was not about yeah. <laughs> manhood, per se. Yes, this was right. about dignity. Yeah. And uh, women would say, and I am a woman, too. You know, that it, the idea is yeah. uh, that we're all in this together. And But people understood immediately that slogan, and it came after people had been beaten and maced and gassed, mm. uh, standing up for their rights. After Martin Luther King's death, his widow, Coretta Scott King, set about preserving and shaping his reputation. She set up and directed the King Center in Atlanta and pushed tirelessly for the creation of a Martin Luther King Day holiday. The journalist Dr. Barbara Reynolds was Coretta Scott King's longtime friend and co-author of her life story, My Life, My Love, My Legacy. I asked Dr. Reynolds how she first met Coretta Scott King. Well, let's go back to about 1972. The Chicago Tribune assigned me to do a cover story uh, about her. And at that point, uh, Coretta Scott King was like the first lady of civil rights. Mm -hmm. And I was a young reporter, so you have to imagine how that made me feel. I mean, to go and even talk to uh, a Coretta Scott King and um she was was in the basement of a a church where she showed me the plans for the king center now at the end of king's life he had fallen greatly out of favor among many americans he was deeply unpopular in part because of his views about the war certainly he hadn't stopped pushing for various forms of racial justice how much did she get concerned about what his reputation had been in legacy terms well first of all we have to understand that she was the builder she was the architect of his legacy because when he was assassinated she was the one of the 
a few people that wanted and made it her sole business to institutionalize his legacy, which was nonviolence. At the center, for example, they taught nonviolence to thousands. That was uh, nonviolence was not just something that they said. It really was a program. But also in the center, she did one step more. And this is very important. She set up the apparatus for the King holiday that's now celebrated in at least 100 countries. And that, you know, I always, it disturbed me all the time when people would say, yeah, she is important to the King holiday. But in, in the King holiday, when we're all celebrating it, we often don't even mention her name. But she had 76 coalitions that she formed to get this going. Uh, She lobbied every senator in Congress to get this going. She organized 5 million signatures Mm. to get this established. And so this was not just something you should flick off and say, uh, yeah, she started, she helped. No, she helped organize. It took her 15 years of her life to do that. And I think without the holiday, I think maybe he might have been um, forgotten. He would not be larger in life uh, as he is now. Now, somewhat infamously, Coretta Scott King was not allowed to speak at the August 1963 March on Washington, nor were any women allowed to speak at that high water mark, really, in in the forms of direct action in the civil rights struggle. Did she talk at all with you about what it felt like to be kept? (laughs) Please, by all means. You know, she didn't get personally rattled and upset about a lot of things. But think about this march, because Rosa Parks couldn't even speak. Right. (laughs) Now, I mean, you know, this is why this happened, because this brave uh, lady activist, NAACP secretary, she refused to move to the back of the bus. And that brought Dr. King and all the rest of it. She couldn't even speak. You know, she had four children, so she couldn't march always. But she had marched with some of the great campaigns with, with Martin. And so when they, uh, she was, you know, reading his speech and talking about Martin, maybe you ought to add this, and he gave the mm. speech and it electrified the nation. After the speech, they got in the limousine and they headed over to the White House to meet with John Kennedy. But they got up to the White House door and they told the driver, well, send the ladies back to the hotel. And, you know, she said, but Martin, I want to go see the president. And he says, this is not on the agenda. And she was very upset. And she went back to the hotel. She was very upset because she said, you know, John F. Kennedy had been so supportive in getting Martin out of jail. He had made a call to her. And she wanted to thank him personally. And, of course, a couple months later, uh, he died. And she said, I'm so sorry because I never uh, got to see him. But you have to realize how sexist the black Baptist preachers were, even when she was trying to build the King Center. So often they criticized her, and these same men who supported her husband didn't want to support her. 
So, I mean, sexism is not something we see today was really alive and well among the movement people. Now, we're coming up on the 50th anniversary of Martin Luther King's death. And much of what Coretta Scott King did over the time after her husband's passing, as you point out, has not really been fully appreciated. But what would you say were some of the best examples of Coretta Scott King's political vision, her stick-to-itiveness, her wherewithal in the decades that were left after her husband had passed away? Well, you you have to understand as she was like a political queen maker. I saw what happens when you really have influence inside uh, politics because more monies were funded to black colleges, uh, more poverty uh, programs were were made so that people of all color who needed help could get help. You know, I haven't seen that kind of influence myself since. I'm really curious to know about this process of co-authoring this book with Coretta Scott King. I mean, she was looking at the full sweep of her life, thinking, I'm sure, about what the book would mean for future generations. What was that process like, and what did she imagine and hope would come of her own life history? When I was at the center where her crypt is beside Dr. Martin Luther King, her husband's crypt, I saw mm. an eternal flame, and I became fixated at that. And it was because it was something she had told me in the book. She said, I want people to know that I was committed to leaving an eternal flame built on love that would never be extinguished. I wanted this flame to touch lives, communities, and nations. I wanted it to ignite and inspire. I wanted Mm -hmm. it to be an urgent call to community and public service. Um, And she talked about it. She said, every heartbreak I ever had preceded a breakthrough. Every thorn Mm. that pierced me positioned me for the next level of challenges. My story is a freedom song from within my soul. It is a story of struggle. And when it is time for me to end this journey, I will count it all joy. When he was still in his 20s, Martin Luther King Jr. was a prominent preacher, an activist, a family man, and also an advice columnist for Ebony Magazine. Writer Michael Denzel Smith, exploring the legacy of King as a role model of black masculinity for Atlantic Magazine, found that readers asked the civil rights leader for advice about everything from race relations to marriage problems, and that the exchanges revealed as much about King as his readers. There are people writing into Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. asking for typical advice column stuff about their relationships. They're like messages preserved in amber from the 50s. I'm going to read one of these letters. My husband is having an affair with a woman in our housing project. He promised to stop, but he's still seeing her. We have children, and I don't believe in divorce, but I cannot and will not share him. What must I do? And part of King's advice reads, 
Since the other person is so near, you might study her and see what she does for your husband that you might not be doing. Do you spend too much time with the children in the house and not pay attention to him? Are you careful with your grooming? Do you nag? Now, let me correct myself. This isn't preserved in amber from the 50s. This is preserved in amber from the 1890s. (laughs) To be as fair as possible to Dr. King. There are a couple men who do write into him asking for relationship advice, and his first reaction is to advise self-analysis. The problem I see here, though, is he gives lots of advice that is drawing on these sexist ideas about who women should be and what housewives should be and ignoring any ideas around gendered labor that happen to exist. He's asking, do you spend too much time with the children? Where are the children supposed to go? (laughs) Dr. King doesn't seem to think about this, right? With, as you note, some exceptions. For instance, birth control. This is true. Someone wrote in asking him whether or not he considered birth control sinful. And King says that he does not consider it sinful and that women should not be just breeding machines. And so he does have some understanding of women as people who can make their own choices and make their own decisions. But the advice that he gives to a woman who says that her husband's a terror, he's just like, well, have you asked yourself about yourself lately? (laughs) What have you done to produce this behavior in him that he doesn't extend that thoughtfulness about birth control and about women's rights and about women's autonomy to this relationship advice? Seems maybe as like writing himself his own past, right? Knowing what we know about King and his own philandering to say, it is not my own fault. So why did you begin your column with the advertisement from Jet and the column from Ebony? He had been on the national scene for all of two years at this point. And Ebony has called him in as a 28, 29-year-old preacher to help you with happier living. We have no reason to believe that Dr. King can help anyone with happier living. He reveals here that maybe he wasn't exactly prepared for it. But there is this idea of him as someone of high moral character. 60 years later, it's still the same. 60 years later, it is exactly the same. And the image of King as a moral authority has been wielded against Black youth in all subsequent generations since his assassination. You call it a shaming tool. Yes. I often describe the civil rights generation of the 50s and 60s as analogous to the immediate post-World War II period, the greatest generation, the 50s and 60s are the greatest Black generation, Mm -hmm. right? We look to them as the perfection of what Black America could be. And Dr. King stands above them all. We want to say that if you are not living up to the example of King, then he must have died in vain. Mm -hmm. And so all social ills that are a product of institutional failures and oppression in Black America get translated into moral failures, character flaws. What about these challenges to Black masculinity today? If we're just talking about a style that was a style in the 60s, it kind of reminds me of the Hasidic people in Brooklyn who walk around in clothes from the 19th century. Is that what's happening here? Or are there more specific challenges than just clothing? It's not just clothing, but the clothing is representative of something. 
King is a very specific mode of operating as a black man that we've come to believe as the most successful version of what a black man could be. And what kind of masculinity does King represent? Not just the respectable suit and tie, preacher, religious, all of that, but he is a cisgender hetero man, right? right? And so you're sending a message to anyone that is not that, that you are a failure of black manhood. We can talk about King being a father, but also he spent a lot of time away from his family and his mm-hmm. children because he was committed to the struggle. There are just so many disconnects between who King actually was and then the idealized version of him that are used to then prescribe a certain sense of black masculinity that all the rest of of us are supposed to live up to. And I can't think of an analogous person in yeah, the white no community. Like, if you're not George Washington, you are a failure, right? <laughs> <laughs> Only King is used in such a way to chastise Black youth. There have been real political consequences. You can go back into the 1980s and 1990s Credit where credit is due, civil rights leaders of that period were calling for things other than policing and and incarceration. Mm -hmm. But they also used the rhetoric of failing to live up to King's dream to chastise Black youth who were involved in violent crimes and in the drug trade, and then turned around and used that same rhetoric of failure to live up to King's dream in imposing the draconian laws that turn into mass incarceration. The same people? Same people. Eric Holder, as Attorney General of Washington, D.C. at the time, he delivers an MLK Day speech where he's talking about Black-on-Black violence, the failure of our people to live up to that example. And where kids who have not yet reached their teenage years already have sworn allegiance to a life of violence and a life of crime. I am dissatisfied that in Washington today, more than 2,500 young people are active gang members. So yes, like Dr. King, and like many of you, I am dissatisfied. He has the ability to then enforce laws that stop black motorists in the pursuit of the drug trade Mm -hmm. and illegal weapons. He's turned the police and the state on black folks in the name of King. Just before King's assassination in 1968, you note he participated in a sanitation Mm -hmm. workers' strike in Memphis. And part of what set off this strike was two sanitation workers getting mashed up in a trash compactor. Mm -hmm. And it just seemed so inhuman, like they didn't care. The striking workers held up a sign saying, I am a man. I am a man. And we was going to demand to have the same dignity and the same courtesy any other citizen of Memphis has. We are saying that we are determined to be men. We are saying that we are God's children. These signs would mean something different in 2018. Yeah. So when we're looking at it now through this lens, we're looking at uh, people who think being a man is tied to their economic futures because they've been taught that a man is the head of household and that 
part of the rights that are being denied to them are not just the rights of being a worker who makes a living wage, but the rights of a man to make a fair wage and provide for his family. So when we're talking about examining these moments and trying to tease out what's useful and what's not, we have to divorce the very real rights that they were fighting for from the way in which they understood those rights and that being so closely tied to their rights as men. And this is drawn from a lot of King's writing as well. He couched these rights very much in a masculine framework that Black folks were and poor folks were being denied the dignity of manhood. The Black man has been denied, and the Black man has been subject to, and the Black man this. And the Black man has seen his woman degraded. And, you know, yeah. it's just this idea that the worst aspects of what racism does is deny men the right to be men. There are a number of different things to just like unpack there. Racism, one, affects Black women as well, right? <laughs> uh, but then also, what does being a man mean? What are the rights that you think are being denied to you and are what you perceive as rights not oppressive to someone else? You and Shadima Threadcraft co-authored an essay um, in the book on King and Gender. And to put it bluntly, he had, especially I think earlier in his career, some pretty retrograde views. Tell me a little bit about what King believed. What we try to draw out is that there that there's some key tensions in how King thinks about gender. It's not a topic that's received a lot of attention. Uh, and we were able to uncover some some interesting archival materials, his old advice column in Ebony Magazine. <laughs> that was um, remarkable. Yeah, uh, it's, a, it's an amazing reading if you if you ever get the chance. Um, you know, it's people writing in in like 1950s Ebony, uh, asking for advice about all sorts of things, like my my husband's cheating on me and he drinks too much, and what do I do? Um, <laughs> Uh, but you actually learn a lot about how he thinks about the family from those and then some of his sermons. And um, what we found is that uh, King kind of, one way you could think about it is that King is sort of working at cross purposes. So on the one hand, he's got these defenses of nonviolent uh, direct action, civil disobedience as, um, you know, having a magnificent universal quality right, that, that it's more inclusive than forms of violent rebellion. Um, he's extremely critical of uh, W.E.B. Du Bois's idea of the talented 10th, right, these ideas of, um, you know, politics not being able to include a wide range of people, um, that, they, that they should be the, the province of experts or those who have the capacities for violent action. Um, he also, you know, endorses things like, you know, basic minimum income, uh, as, as being constitutive of our dignity and, you know, respecting uh, a wide range of our capacities, not just those that are going to receive compensation uh, as, as wage labor. But on the other hand, 
um, you know, he's got these these really retrograde views about um, about sex and gender. So, you know, often the Southern Christian Leadership Conference meetings, uh, you know, are organized in such a way that women basically aren't allowed to speak or introduce new um, new items on the agenda. When they are organizing major events, women often are, are not invited to speak. Um, when he writes about what the family is supposed to be, or you know, he he, he writes that, you know, basically uh, the, the family's got to be organized so that everyone takes joy in each other's pursuits and flourishing, but that all of that needs to be tethered to uh, recognition of the nature of man and woman, and then this sort of classic. Um, you know, old school, uh, complementarity, patriarchal uh, gender norms, right? So man is active and he needs to be outside of the home. And he's always got to measure himself against the achievements of other men. While women, even if they have these interests outside of the home, they really achieve their, their most um, most fundamental flourishing in the space of the home and raising a family. Um and so a lot of the advice he gives to people um, and, the, and, and a lot of the ways he thinks about uh, these things all come back to his sense of the appropriate place of women and men and his notion of the family. And so one of the things that uh, Shatima Threadcraft and I try to do is show, you know, not only just critique those things, which is pretty easy to critique, um, <laughs> but also show how the other elements of his thought, this investment in the universal quality of political action, nonviolent direct action, his investment in basic minimum income, his his deep attunement to the ways in which welfare bureaucracies and bureaucracies more generally can become humiliating uh, and the need for, you know, pretty active citizen engagement, um, you know, to, to, to constantly contest uh, relations of power and housing and um, and bureaucracy, how all of those things can be really robust elements of a left feminist vision, but how you, you know, in order to get there, you, you'd have to jettison and uproot, um, you know, King's, you know, ontology of gender and his, his norms about the family. And you have to point, read, King, read King against King is, is the way you put it. Exactly. And, and at that point, you know, that's not King's thought. <laughs> <laughs> like King himself is a sexist, but but are there resources that be, can be reconstructed? And you have something in the spirit of King, not his thought. He is a sexist. One thing that I took from that essay was that he was at his most feminist, even if accidentally, when he was most focused on economic justice. I think that's that's right. Um, I think he's also got some interesting moves as a critique of Black power masculinity. Um, you know, I think so much of what the Black Power Movement is up to uh, revolves around the rhetorical deployment of certain kinds of performances of masculinity. Uh, and to the extent that King manages to deflate those things, I think that's really useful as well. But certainly, you know, he, he I think that the, the biggest resources uh, for feminist reconstruction are in this realm of political, uh, political economy. On the black power debate question, you uh, you pull a really powerful quote from King. One of the greatest paradoxes of the black power movement is that it talks unceasingly about not imitating the values of white society, but in advocating violence, it is imitating the worst, the most brutal, 
and the most uncivilized value of American life. I think what he's what he's getting at there, um, you know, and he and he he draws this out in lots of subtle ways. Um, just that if there's going to be a revolution in values, uh, you know, you can't just it can't just be performed at the level of rhetoric, right? So that one of his critiques of the black power movement is that, you know, for all of this rhetoric about, you know, creating a a new black society or um, refounding the world upon, uh, you know, the, 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 the different sort of ontological character of blackness, um, which is also, you know, quite mythic, but, but people believe you know, that really we need to, to have a kind of um, incisive attunement toward what practices have created the world that we live in. And one of the things he's, he's really, you know, and I think this is also a quite feminist moment in King, is that he's quite critical of a, a stance of hyper-masculinity, which he often calls a kind of frontier mentality or cowboy mentality um, that he sees as endemic in American political culture. Um, so that, you know, we, we often treat it as reflexive that we should respond to insult with violence or violence with more violence. Uh, and not only is that corrosive in protest politics, but it's corrosive at the level of geopolitics and gets us embroiled in wars like Vietnam, which have such severe um, consequences for, you know, democracy, for uh, human flourishing, for uh, global justice. That you know, um, you, you you really want to jettison the kind of uh, pernicious cultural norms that lead you to think things like that are rational <laughs> um, when when they're, they're quite obviously not, given all the other things you're ostensibly committed to. Of Martin Luther King Jr. MLK literally gave his life to fight for liberation and equality for black people in this country. But people often forget that he was actually pretty radical. And he was so hated that he was targeted and tracked by the FBI throughout his entire fight for civil rights. Dr. King would not participate in a Black Lives Matter protest. That's the whole message I think that Dr. King tried to present. And I think you'd be appalled by the notion that we're elevating some lives above others. Dr. King, if he were alive today, he wouldn't disrespect the flag or the anthem. He would use his words and his voice. (laughs) Yes, he believed that nonviolence was the best way to achieve liberation, but he would never condemn how black people deal with rage without condemning the system that creates it. He said it himself. I think America must see that riots do not develop out of thin air. Certain conditions continue to exist in our society, which must be condemned as vigorously as we condemn riots. But that's not the MLK people so proudly invoke today. Don't let the suit fool you. MLK's politics went far beyond having a dream that little black boys and little black girls will be able to join hands, little white boys and little white girls as sisters and brothers. In the same speech, he said, 
We can never be satisfied as long as the Negro is the victim of the unspeakable horrors of police brutality. We cannot be satisfied as long as the Negro's basic mobility is from a smaller ghetto to a larger one. Based on those words alone, it's safe to say that Dr. Martin Luther King's fight is far from over. It continues today through movements like Black Lives Matter. And there's still a long way to go. Black people are over five times more likely to be incarcerated than white Americans. Over a third of black children in the U.S. live in poverty. And black people are still disproportionately killed and targeted by the police. In the words of Martin Luther King Jr., freedom is never voluntarily given by the oppressor. It must be demanded by the oppressed. There's no right way to demand freedom. If there were, we'd already be free. Goodman with Juan Gonzalez as we continue our conversation with historian Jean Theo Harris, author of the new book, A More Beautiful and Terrible History, The Uses and Misuses of Civil Rights History. Let's turn to a clip of President Ronald Reagan speaking November 2nd, 1983, when he signed the bill establishing the Martin Luther King National Holiday. Now, our nation has decided to honor Dr. Martin Luther King Jr. by setting aside a day each year to remember him and the just cause he stood for. We've made historic strides since Rosa Parks refused to go to the back of the bus. As a democratic people, we can take pride in the knowledge that we Americans recognized a grave injustice and took action to correct it. So that is President Ronald Reagan in 1983, the official announcement of the holiday honoring Dr. Martin Luther King. That wasn't always President Reagan's view, Jean Thea Harris. Oh, no, no. Uh, Reagan, um, for many years, had felt was very skeptical of a holiday for Ronald uh, for, for, for Martin Luther King. Uh, he thought there were too many holidays. It might be costly. He wasn't sure if King might be a communist or communist sympathizer. Um, so for years, he'd, he'd opposed. Um, then he begins to see the political utility uh, for him, particularly among moderate white-like voters. Uh, Reagan is sort of has a sensitivity gap around racial issues, it's, and he's running for re-election. And so he starts to see sort of a political upside to sort of backing this legislation. Um, and I think in his speech, we see the elements of what is going to become the this what I'm calling a, the national fable of the civil rights movement, right? It's about courageous individuals in the past. They saw an injustice. The injustice is fixed, like— um, all herald the power of American democracy, right? So it's about progress. It's about American exceptionalism. It's about racism in the past. Um, and that's going to be, in many ways, um, from Reagan to Bush to Clinton to Bush to Obama to even President Trump, we see a kind of narrative of the civil rights movement um, that's about celebrating these individual heroes 
as a way to celebrate the greatness of America. And as a way to put it into, the, as you say, into the past, because uh, compare the the way now that the the uh, the mainstream narrative on the civil rights movement is to how Black Lives Matter is treated today. Right. I mean, one of the motivations behind the book was um, the ways that this narrative of the civil rights movement is marshaled to kind of chastise and correct that Black Lives Matter. It's too extreme. It's you know, they might agree with the goals, but not the tactics. Uh, you're not going about it the right way. You're not—these uh, aren't the right leaders. So many of these criticisms are criticisms that are waged against the civil rights movement. The civil rights movement was seen as extreme. The civil rights movement was seen as uh, going too far too fast. Just to give you one poll, 1964, here in New York—we're not even talking about the South— this is a year before the Voting Rights Act. A majority of New Yorkers think the civil rights movement has gone too far by 1964 in New York. Well, well in 1966 was the, the Cicero march where Martin Luther King went right into the heart of the North and right. marched in Cicero, Illinois. He said he'd never seen the kind of anger and, and, and violence from white people of Cicero than he had, like he'd seen in the South. Absolutely. The last time Rosa Parks and Martin Luther King see each other is in Gross Point, Michigan, um, suburb of Detroit. Um, he will describe it as the most disruptive indoor audience he ever encounters. He's called a traitor so many times that night that at one point he stops and says, we're going to have a Q&A and you can question me about my traitorness there because he's just getting heckled the whole time. Um, so I think we, again, right, that we have this idea that it was popular, that most decent people Right, supported it at the time. And regrettably, that was not the case. So let's go to what you're saying about today. Last summer, in the wake of the police killings of Philando Castile and Alton Sterling, Black Lives Matter activists in Atlanta, Georgia, took to the streets, along with protesters around the country. This is Atlanta's then-mayor, Kasim Reed, reacting to the actions that shut down some of Atlanta's major arteries, the streets. My message was that we're respecting their First Amendment rights, but we're the home of Dr. Martin Luther King. And the only thing that I ask is that they not take the freeways. Um, that's everybody. That's your mom, my family, your families. And Dr. King would never take a freeway. I understand that this is just this generation's protest, but um, during the civil rights movement, they spent more time on making sure that everybody got home safe uh, as they did in the actual protest itself. And so let's just let this be uh, the best version of ourselves. So Dr. King would never have taken a freeway, said Mayor Reed at the time. I mean, Professor Thayer. It, it's just hard to even know where to begin. I mean, probably the most I iconic event, right? The Selma to Montgomery march. What is that? Right. Um, the Montgomery bus boycott, it's not taking a freeway, but it's absolutely disruptive. It's meant to be disruptive. It's supposed, it's meant to both disrupt the functioning of the bus company, but also shortly after they began to boycott the buses, they also that Christmas boycott stores. It's meant to shut, it's meant to say there can be no business as usual. Um, and so part of, I think, the danger of these mishistories, the danger of this fable, is the ways then it's used to shut down sort of conversation and protest, you know, in this constant wishing, uh, you know, Mike Huckabee saying, uh, in Fer you know, to Ferguson protesters, you know, that he wished he would be—they would be more like MLK. And in my head, I'm thinking, you know, be careful what you wish for, uh, because, you know, they are, right? And 
you don't and this and you don't like it, right? It is disruptive. It is uncomfortable. It is relentless. It doesn't. It's not just injustice exposed as injustice changed. That's not how the civil rights movement actually proceeded. It was injustice exposed and exposed and exposed and exposed and and you move the needle slowly, 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 slowly. To me, when I think about the kind of more simplistic popular image of Dr. King that we learn about in schools that is portrayed in kind of mainstream culture in, in white America, let's say, that the reason why the economic issues are de-emphasized and the reason why some of the war issues are de-emphasized is because they hit at the power structure, right, that is white America, and that it is easier to remember Dr. King as someone who just fought against, uh, you know, legal segregation that was then, uh, because of his work and because of the work of many others, was was later overturned, and to imagine his legacy as kind of mission accomplished. Uh, so talk a little more about how he's viewed in, in popular culture, how the emphasis is always on the I have a dream speech of, of racial equality and not on the economic pieces and, and why you think that is. At his death, Dr. King started, well, just before his death, he was mounting um, a poor people's uh, campaign. And that poor people's campaign was talking about how racial inequality was tied to the structural economic system writ large capitalism that dominates American um, society and that that capitalism was exploitative of poor people, poor white people and black people who disproportionately were poor uh, in the 60s uh, and today. Um, that's a challenge. And he, he issued that challenge and he, he called for um, a restructuring of our economic system. He wanted uh, redistributive economic policies, which sounds, when you say it today, you, people on the far right will argue, well, that's socialism. And it could be socialism, but it could also not be socialism. I mean, as we saw with the tax law exactly. that was recently passed. Exactly. Distribute the, the wealth in the other direction. Exactly. Uh, well, we don't think of it that way. Helping poor people in some ways or another, they're not deserving of that. But wealthy people are deserving of it for whatever reasons we may want to believe. And Dr. King challenged that. And those kinds of challenges were not popular. They were not popular with black people, and they were definitely not popular with whites. So why weren't they popular with, with black people at that time? Um, there was a burgeoning uh, or the, the nascent um, black middle class that was coming in to be uh, about the late 60s. And the idea of making money, uh, having money, and being able to spend your money in restaurants or hotels or wherever it is that they that white people previously had exclusive, these people wanted that. There was a pent-up demand to be able to be a full American, which meant that you had money and you could spend it the way you wanted. Well, you start talking about redistributive economic 
policies and you start talking about those kinds of things, that poses a threat to them as well. And so that made a lot of what Dr. King was saying uh, very unpopular with with some of the different elements of our society. And we it's been easy and convenient uh, in the memorialization not to talk about that. If we want to talk about um, comparing him to Jesus, for example, Christians believe have a, have this sort of notion of Jesus as this benevolent, long-haired hippie who walked around saying, love your neighbor. But that wasn't what Jesus was about at all. He was very much about redistributive uh, economic policy. He was very about uh, taking care of immigrants. He was very much into uh, helping the poor at and and not aiding the the powerful politicians of the society, uh, so there is some some similarities with Dr. King. So he is Jesus. Jesus. <laughs> well, he's <After> not. All. <laughs> he's not Jesus, but I think that it's uncomfortable to talk about people who challenge the so, the status quo. Jesus yeah. did it. King did it. Malcolm X did it. Nelson Mandela did it. Gandhi did it. Um, a whole range of people have done that, and and people the, the status quo can't stand it. They don't yeah. they don't want that. What do you think would surprise people about Dr. King as you talk about his legacy, as you think about this legacy uh, on this fiftieth year uh, commemoration? What would people be surprised to learn about him that they don't already know? As my friend Wendy Thomas said in the piece I wrote, that King was a radical. He was not this turn-the-other-cheek-at-all-cost kind of a guy. I mean, he believed in um, the power of nonviolence, but that was really for him a tool. It was a tool because black people could not be violent because the, the power of the state would crush them. So that what he was using was almost sort of a, a jujitsu kind of thing. Have the world see how oppressors treat nonviolence, and then other people will be sympathetic and rally to your cause. The cause, however, was very radical, restructuring American society from a legacy of slavery to one of inclusion of people who had been deemed as three-fifths of a person. Let me ask you about this current political moment uh, and to reflect a bit on the reality that we as a country may have made progress in moving towards some greater racial equality, maybe some greater economic equality uh, with the nation's first black president. And then the nation elected a president who undid a lot of that uh, progress. Or is at least attempting to Is undo attempting it. to undo that progress and very overtly echoes uh, the messages and the arguments of, of white supremacists and of racists and constantly dog whistles to a very conservative hardline base. I'm wondering what we can apply from Dr. King's teachings to this moment in dealing and living through a rather dark era uh, and an with a leader who is, you know, attacking many of the fundamental principles that uh, that he believed. Uh, Dr. King famously said that the um, the moral arc of the universe bends towards justice. Um, and I believe that to be true. What we are going through now uh, has to be uh, a temporary 
uh, setback. There is no guarantee that progress is going to move in a, a steady, uninterrupted, straight line, positive. Uh, we are now in a trough, and uh, at some point or another, we will climb back out of it. For all of my um, concerns about what's happening now in this, this current political environment, um, I also understand why it's happening. And it, it is no accident that um, we have President Trump following uh, President Obama. Um, Obama was the warning shot across the bow of America that the nation is changing. He was the first uh, African-American uh, president and that was a a tremendous blow, I would argue, to the psyche of people who had a notion that America is a white country and will always be a white country. We now are seeing the browning of America. There's much been written about the browning of America. And that we now are having uh, a reaction to uh, the Obama presidency that says this is a corrective in their minds. This is a way to to send us back. And if you, you really examine the language of Trump and more specifically the people who really uh, like and respect what he's doing, it's the language of um, nullification and imposition, two terms that Dr. King talked about. They want to turn the clock back. They want America to be something that it was in the late 40s and in the 50s, where white men were supreme in everything that happened and everybody else sort of was subordinate to them. That can't be. That so what are lessons then for us moving forward with how Dr. King helped lead the civil rights movement, helped fight against those very same kind of individuals who wanted to at that time keep the clock where it was what can today's resistors uh learn from from dr king from the way dr king persevered against those forces i don't know that that uh dr king provides a roadmap for how to do that as much as he serves as inspiration for people who want to resist I mean, you need your heroes to serve as inspiration more than necessarily following the route that they exactly took. What is called for today, in my opinion, is not necessarily marching, but voting and organizing. And to the extent that Dr. King was was visionary in his ability to sort of rally large numbers of people to organize them, um, to 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 move in a coordinated and um, mass way, uh, I think that that's what, what progressives today sort of misunderstand, that, that what really needs to be taking place is the organization, the fundamental blocks of, our, of a democracy. You've got to register people to vote. You've got to resist the temptation to, to keep people from being able to vote. You've got to um, appeal to um, folks who feel that they don't have a stake in the electoral system or in the outcomes of politics. Those are the kinds of things that I think are called for. And you can point to someone like Dr. King and the success that he was able to have as reasons for why you should be doing these things. I don't think it's necessary for us to march across the Edmund Prentice Bridge or to, to reinvent the I Have a Dream speech on the mall as much as it is to, to go out and make sure that people who are outside the political system are allowed to get into the political system. 
We've just heard clips today, starting with Democracy Now!, speaking with James Lawson and Michael Honey about MLK, worker solidarity, and the indispensable work of women in the civil rights movement. Backstory explored the legacy of Coretta Scott King. On the media, dove into MLK's retrograde views on gender and examined how those views continue to impact race and gender relations today. The Dig also looked into the question of King and gender. The Root looked at some lesser-known aspects of King's legacy and his thoughts on the actions of those protesting for freedom. Democracy Now! also looked at some of King's protest actions as compared to the modern protests by groups like Black Lives Matter. And finally, we just heard Thinking Cap also look at some of the less popular aspects of MLK's legacy before finishing up with some advice on how to move forward. As always, you can find links to each of these segments in the show notes for easy reference and sharing. And now, we'll hear from you. Hi, this is Sam from Nashville giving you a call back. And my my biggest takeaway from your response was actually the first thing that you said. Um, and while I'd love to respond to each point for right now, I, I want to solely focus on the one thing I just cannot get out of my head, which is your lack of surprise at where our worldviews collide and even align. If you and others on the left are aware of this commonality we share on these issues, Where's the movement for unity? Sadly, it seems like we on both sides hate each other so much for our differences, we cannot unite to change the world where we agree. Uh, I consume a lot of content from Stefan Molyneux to Sam Harris, from Dave Rubin to the Young Turks, Jordan Peterson to this show. It's all an attempt to find this common ground. And I so badly, I wonder which side will lead this unity movement, the, the left or the right. Which side will history call the uniter? Um, I really believe it's going to be the side who can truly be for the human beings on the other side. I believe it will come from those who see the beauty in the other side and who love their fellow man. Even while consumed with like just passionate disagreement on other issues. And I believe we already have this love for our fellow man, but you know, almost always we write it off as a weakness or a foolishness when it comes to politics. I want to share with you and uh, your listeners how in my small sphere of influence, I'm seeking this unity. Um, a few times a month, my sister, who went to the Women's March and voted differently than I, uh, we talk through the issues and we share on a Google document, um, kind of listing out our, uh, our common ground. And as we all seek to reason um, our way to truth uh, and a better world, what, what's stopping us from uniting where we already agree? What is that driving force behind our inability to move on these immensely important common ground issues? We don't need great minds. We need great uniters. Yes, we're going to disagree on how an economy should work. You may think capitalism is two shades away from slavery. I think capitalism is the greatest reason abject poverty has been in free fall relative to human history. You may think personal freedom can be dangerous. I think personal freedom is the essence of social justice because the ultimate minority is the individual. You may think we need big government to provide social stability. I think big government has been the greatest tool of mass murder and human suffering through the centuries. But we both agree that big corporations and government should not be doing favors for each other with the people's money, all while pushing out the little guy. 
you know, how many Fortune 500 companies are left from 50 or 100 years ago, it's not many because they get bloated and slow while young, passionate companies take them to the woodshed. Um, you know, of course, the more cronyism we get, the more huge corporations are safe from being challenged and they start price gouging and they stop progress. Um, and I, I know while we all feel an instinct to protect these ideologies, we hold dear and most true. My question to you is how, how is it that we can keep protecting our deepest values that we see as most progressive all while pursuing and pushing to unite? And the next thing I'm about to say, I say with all that I am, as someone on the right who sees many of your points as dangerous to human flourishing, I want to say to those on the opposite side, so loudly for all who are listening to hear, I do not hate you. I know in your motives you love people. I believe in your goodness. I know your heart is pure. Let us, who have the eyes to see the depth of our common ground, bravely risk taking steps towards unity. Let America truly lead the world again as United States. United where we agree, honoring where we do not. As always, thank you for what you do. I will continue to listen and learn. Thanks for listening, everyone. Thanks to the volunteers who helped gather clips to make this show possible. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets and activism segments. And thanks to all those who called into the voicemail line. If you'd like to leave a comment or question of your own to be played on the show, simply record a message at 202-999-3991. Now, before I give any kind of a detailed response to Sam and his voicemail, I actually have a very simple answer for him. He asked the question, who is leading the charge? on a unity movement, and there is an answer to that. Of all people, it's Ralph Nader. And and to be clear, there are a lot of people doing bipartisan work uh, that they tout as being bipartisan. You know, the Young Turks have their group, Wolfpack, uh, working on getting money out of politics, and they tout all the time about how getting the corrupting influence of money out of politics enjoys like a 95% approval rating. So they know that it's not just you know, a left issue. So, uh, so lots of people do work like that, that they recognize as being bipartisan, uh, or, or just, you know, beyond the spectrum of left, right. But Ralph Nader literally wrote the book on what he calls the emerging left, right alliance. And, and so rather than me try to explain that to you, here's a short clip from free speech TV, Ralph sort of describing the book. Um, this is from back in 2014. Reasons why are so many uh, so many Americans are so dissatisfied with the two major parties is pretty straightforward. When it comes to core issues like the military-industrial complex, the surveillance state, and Wall Street, there's not that much difference between the leadership of the Democratic and Republican parties. Both protect the interests of the corporate elite. But if there is a bipartisan consensus in favor of the status quo, there's also a bipartisan consensus against the status quo. Longtime consumer advocate and five-time candidate for president of the United States, Ralph Nader, has written about this in his new must-read book, Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. Ralph Nader, the guy I voted for for president in 2000, joins us now in the studio. Great to have you back with us, Mr. Nader. Uh, When most people think about politics in America, they think about extreme partisanship. In your book, you say that's not really the case. Why? It's a divide-move strategy by the corporate powers. Obviously, if they can split 
uh, left-right opinion uh, and put the left-right to focus on where they do disagree, like reproductive rights or, or gun control, they control the scene. And, and, and they keep the left and right from moving on where they do agree. And where they do agree would take power away from the corporate brokers, and it would get a lot of things done in this country. Look where they agree. 80%, almost 80% comes in for a higher minimum wage. That's a lot of conservative workers in Walmart and other places. Right. Uh, 90% want to break up the big banks because they're too big to fail, and they're risking another crash out of New York and Wall Street. Uh, a large majority want... Uh, tough crackdown on corporate crime. They see it. They get ripped off as consumers. They get thrown aside as workers. And, and they get cheated as, as taxpayers. Here's the big one. Right, left against corporate welfare and what the right wing calls crony capitalism. That is really a powerful one. Right. And they want to revise the trade agreements, NAFTA and WTO. The right says it shreds our sovereignty. Uh, the left says it steals our jobs and ships them overboard. So once the two, right. yeah. So once the two come together, it's unbeatable. Now, where does it come together? Came together beating the Clinch River Breeder Reactor in 1983 against the corporate lobbies, the False Claims Act. You remember the 1986? That was a, a defeat for the corporate lobby because it was a left-right alliance. Last year, the Whistleblower Protection Bill to blow the whistle on corporate fraud on the government, like on the defense contracts and on Medicare. Again, left-right defeated the corporate power. Nothing terrifies the power structure, whether it's the politicians in Washington and hock to the Wall Street brokers, than a left-right alliance because it spells majority. So the issue is, how do we get more left people to come together? And this is what this book's about. 24 areas of convergence, including moral issues like the commercialization of childhood, undermining parental authority, selling these kids junk food, junk drink, and, and, and uh, violent programming. Uh, terrible. You get a left-right on that. And, and all it needs to do is go from opinion, and then they've got to be more visible, they've got to demonstrate, they've got to petition, and then the rumble starts from the people. Right. And then the press picks it up. They love this. Odd fellows today, you know, or, you know, an unlikely team of. They like that. It's a, it's a man-bites-dog story. Then when it gets on the table, like a single payer, that gets majority support year after year. Uh, full Medicare for all, everybody in, nobody out. Uh, free choice of hospital and, and doctor, which most people don't have anymore. That, if that rumbles, it's unstoppable. So I'm saying to left, right, come on, don't let them divide and rule you. You can change America. You can give something to your children and grandchildren. Be, just lock your arms together. I mean, you're going to differ on other things. Step it aside. You know, say, okay, we're going we're to differ on A, B, C, D, but we're going to come together on W, X, Y, Z, shifting power to the people. Okay, so that gives you a sense of what the book's all about. And now here's what I propose. Sam, obviously, is very passionate about this uh, issue. He's taken the time to call in uh, twice now, speaking very eloquently on the topic. And this book has been on my reading list for years. I just hadn't gotten around to it yet. So here, here's my proposal. We clearly need a book club. You know, we could just continue this conversation back and forth. Uh, we could uh, you know, lament the lack of unity or, or the lack of a path forward. But this book is, it's the best I know of for finding common ground and, and making headway on 
issues that we agree on, not to both lay down our arms and stop arguing about the things where we disagree, but to make headway on uh, the places where we agree. And now to be clear, I can think of half a dozen structural reasons that help explain why we are where we are. Some are modern, some stretch back decades. There's a lot of political science that could go into explaining why we are where we are, but I think one of the things that we may be able to agree on across the political spectrum is that where we are right now is terrible. So rather than doing what we very often do, wallowing in in this terrible place and, and focusing in reverse and focusing on why we are where we are, how we got here, I'm happy to take a break from that and try to find a way forward. So I've already purchased Ralph Nader's book. I, I haven't talked to Sam about it or anything. I, my sense is he's going to like this idea and he'll be on board. So, you know, hopefully Sam and literally anyone else. I would love for there to be a, a wide range of people. I know there are conservatives out there listening. If that sounds like a good idea to you, I would love for you guys to read this book also and chime in. Again, it's Unstoppable, the Emerging Left-Right Alliance to Dismantle the Corporate State. And, uh, and you know, we'll just see where this goes. Now, I just want to wrap up getting back to today's topic and and say what I had intended to say before I heard Sam's message. Thinking about uh, Martin Luther King, his legacy, how people imagine his legacy, and how people continue to use uh, what's called respectability politics to uh, tamp down <laughs> any uh, efforts for structural change. Any protests are always, always, always met with people saying, uh, you know, I, I like your idea, but you're going a little too far. You're making people a little uncomfortable uh, and, and you're hurting your own cause. So uh, you may know, it hasn't been talked about on the show yet, but uh, there's a, a young boy in Sacramento, California. He was shot in his own grandmother's backyard. I think they shot at him about 20 times. He was hit several times, many times in the back, was killed. And so we we posted a video about a protest in response to that, including the, the young boy's brother who was protesting at a city council meeting. There was lots of yelling, lots of disruption. The guy got up on the the sort of desk in the dais, and it just couldn't have been better scripted, the types of responses we got. And keep in mind, these are people who probably listen to this show. At the very least, they're probably subscribed to the Best of Left, uh, you know, whatever. They liked the Facebook page. So Todd, for instance, said in response to this video, I wonder if sitting on the dais was a bit much. I'm on his side, back the black, and want to reconstruct our law-slash-prison system, but I would have been tempted to shove his ass off there if I was on the council, just saying. And then Anthony responded, Have no problem protesting, but running around and screaming and acting like a freaking uncaged lunatic, probably not the best way to get your point across. Way to turn people off to your cause. So... Uh, today's episode just couldn't be a, a better place uh, to discuss that a little bit. Speaking of books, I've been interested in reading. Uh, what I'm in the middle of right now is the uh, is is the book Rules for Radicals, and and this guy has plenty to say about people like Todd and Anthony. So I'm just going to read a few quotes for you because because they're they're perfect. The author Saul Linsky refers to these guys 
as uh, do-nothings. And he says, These do-nothings profess a commitment to social change for ideals of justice, equality, and opportunity, and then abstain from and discourage all effective action for change. They are known by their brand, quote, I agree with your ends but not your means, unquote. They function as blankets whenever possible, smothering sparks of dissension that promise to flare up into the fire of action. These do-nothings appear publicly as good men, humanitarian, concerned with justice and dignity. In practice, they are invidious. They are the ones Edmund Burke referred to when he said, acidly, the only thing necessary for the triumph of evil is for good men to do nothing, unquote. And so I want to draw two points for this. One, directed at the people who would say things like this, like Todd and Anthony, and the other, to people who... Uh, are frustrated by these kinds of people who, whether they mean to or not, end up holding back social progress. To the so-called do-nothings, I want to say, your ideas are clearly not original. Your concerns are not original. People have been complaining about people like you and your ability to hold back progress for decades, probably longer. So before you make comments like that, just make sure you understand what group you are putting yourself in. And to everyone else, uh, I have a couple more quotes from this book. Uh, continuing, the basic requirement for the understanding of the politics of change is to recognize the world as it is. We must work with it on its terms if we are to change it to the kind of world we would like it to be. We must first see the world as it is and not as we would like it to be. We must see the world as all political realists have, in terms of what men do and not what they ought to do, as Machiavelli and others have put it, end quote. And the point I'm trying to make is that people like this, the people who naysay, the people who support the ends but not the means, uh, they wring their hands and, as it was so eloquently put, act to smother the sparks of dissension that promise to flare up into the fire of action, those people have always been around. Just like there's always been a, a spectrum of political thought, so it is an absolute waste of time to lament the existence of these people. Having been following politics pretty closely for 15 years or so, I know there is a lot of conversation simply lamenting, oh, why is it that the people who disagree with me disagree with me? Why are they so stupid? Why do they believe in things that would be so damaging to themselves and others? Or why does this person who agrees with me mostly disagree with my tactics and is thereby helping the other side inadvertently? Whatever. These kinds of conversations happen all the time. And what I would encourage is to recognize, uh, as this book was saying, to simply see the world as it is and act on it as it is, to spend any time lamenting these, these uh, basically immutable structures of society that include all of these different kinds of people is a complete waste of time. Recognize that these people will always be there, whoever these people are, whether they're your ideological opposites or someone who is standing right next to you but believes slightly different than you do, who can be described in this case as the do-nothings. And I would just say in this case, to use that knowledge of the way the world is and to see it the way it is and not lament it, but to just face it head on 
and to not feel discouraged by those people who you know are out there. You know they exist. You know the comments they're going to make already. It's it's like being discouraged at your ability to jump because of the existence of gravity. It is a force that is out there. You simply have to work with it, against it. It has to be part of the plan. If you'd like to call in with your thoughts, I'd love to hear them. I keep the voicemails coming in at 202-999-3991. That is going to be it for today. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or making donations of any size at patreon.com slash bestofleft. That is absolutely how the program survives. Of course, everyone can support the show just by telling everyone you know about it and leaving us glowing reviews on iTunes and Facebook to help others find the show. You can also help us in our mission to aggregate and amplify the best progressive media by joining up with us on Facebook and Twitter and sharing all of the great content we put out there. And for details on the show itself, including links to all of the sources and music used in this and every episode. All that information can always be found in the show notes on the blog. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you every Tuesday and Friday, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com.